Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Today's episode is brought to you by the letter D for diet culture. To gain access to the virtual guide to this episode, please subscribe to the Full Bloom Project mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. Much to our delight, the term diet culture is making its way into mainstream rhetoric more and more each day. But you certainly are not alone if this is a relatively new term for you. In a very brief nutshell, diet culture is the culture we all inhabit. More specifically, it is a system of beliefs and ideas which equate thinness with health and virtue and tells us a person's value is tied to body size. It is the reason so many of us, our kids included, willingly give up tremendous amounts of time energy, and money in pursuit of the unrealistic appearance ideals that society has convinced us are a prerequisite to happiness and satisfaction. Many people don't even know they are knee-deep in diet culture. They may just think they're trying to eat cleaner or get their bodies beach body ready. But the truth is that this many billion dollar industry is far more powerful than we think. So powerful, in fact, that it has convinced most of society that diets and weight loss goals will improve the quality of our lives, even though a very robust body of research shows that 95% of the time diets don't even work. Later this season, we will talk more specifically about the science behind why diets are so profoundly problematic and what makes them among the most serious childhood risk factors for developing an eating disorder. But today, we will talk specifically about the appearance ideals that diet culture propagates. Exposure to the barrage of messaging about appearance ideals in our society is inevitable. It's just not possible or humane to put a paper bag over your child's head when they walk past a billboard, spend time on Instagram, or flip open a magazine, so it can feel pretty bleak for parents. However, today's guest, psychologist Dr. Rachel Rogers, says parents have much more power than we may think. Dr. Rogers comes to us from Northeastern University, where she directs the Appear Lab for Body Image and Eating Concerns Research. Dr. Rogers is the author of over 50 journal articles and book chapters, so rest assured that her tips are massively informed by an extensive body of work. Family Life called Leslie away the day we spoke with Dr. Rogers, but I was thrilled to have the chance to hear what the research says about how parents can serve as a very powerful volume button on society's appearance-focused noise to help our children fully bloom. Dr. Rogers, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Hello, thank you for having me. 
I'm hoping you can just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the research you do on eating disorder prevention. Yes. I am a professor where I direct the APPEAR lab. That's Applied Psychology Program for Eating and Appearance Research. And I've been interested in social cultural influences on body image and eating concerns since very early on, so when pursuing my master's, and have continued to focus on this and trying to expand our understanding of how these influences contribute to body image and eating concerns, as well as how we can develop prevention programs that target them. And when I say prevention, I'm thinking of both programs for individuals to help buffer them against these influences, but also how we can actually change or modify the environments that people are in, both their local environments, but also the more macro level environment. Mm. And so two of the main social cultural agents that I've been interested in are the media and parents or the family environment. And generally, the way that I think about these two sources of influence is that the media is more of a widespread source of influence. Mm -hmm. It promotes appearance ideals, certain values around weight, and it can be thought of as embedded in the for-profit system that benefits to a certain extent from people pursuing these ideals. Yeah. And then these media messages are then relayed to children and adolescents, in particular by parents who are, of course, embedded in the same social cultural environment as their children. And so their influence can perhaps be thought of more as the, the volume button on the media messages and that they can turn the volume up or down and so amplify or weaken messages about appearance, weight and, and eating. So it's a great segue into what we're happy to be talking to you about today, which is this very thing. How can parents, if they're the, what did you say, the volume button? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. How can they protect their child's developing body image, what should we be thinking when you say appearance ideals and what is the purpose of the volume button when it comes to said appearance ideals? So when I say appearance ideals, it's, it's really a shorthand to talk about the cultural discourse that promotes unrealistic appearance ideals that are largely unattainable by healthy means for the majority of people. Um, and this discourse that encourages people to pursue these ideals some to the detriment to their health and well-being. And I think there are really three central elements to this discourse to consider. The first is the ideals themselves. So they're centered around thinness, leanness, muscularity, as well as youth. And they're very normative. So they promote everybody kind of looking the same. And that's actually a very different appearance from the way that most people look. Mm-hmm. And also, to some extent, more recently, this appearance has become a bit compl- conflated with what is talked about as health, um, which has become a bit more about looking fit than, than feeling um, a kind of more embodied health. So, so that's the first bit. Um, the second bit is the idea that achieving these appearance ideals and looking a certain way, that very normative way, is really important important because your appearance is thought to somehow reflect internal qualities like discipline or being a nice person, or on the contrary, lacking willpower and being a burden on society. Mm -hmm. And also important because achieving this look is thought to be accompanied by rewards at the personal, professional, or social level. So maybe happiness, success, fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So that's so important to note because part of what we talk about week after week here is this notion of the thin ideal and how dangerous it is for 
uh, youngsters to internalize it because, of course, that's what we see in our practices when we're working with people with full-blown eating disorders. They've internalized this thin ideal. And what I appreciate about what you're saying is that the thin ideal comes, it, like with it comes so much. It's like a, it's virtue, it's accomplishment. It's, it's not just uh, aesthetics. It's like there's a lot baked into what's uh, appetizing about this idea. Absolutely. It's, it's this idea that what, um, what people see of you in terms of your appearance is somehow reflecting your inner self. And the, the third piece of that discourse that I think is also important to highlight is the idea that shape, weight, or other aspects of appearance are malleable and easily modified through behaviors, willpower, and a bit of money. And we know that a large part of weight and shape is actually quite beyond our control. Mm -hmm. And yet the way that it's talked about in the media or the diet and fitness industry suggests otherwise. Mm -hmm. So bad to allow your kids to develop a belief that actually they do have control over the shape they're in because it's false hope. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, accentuated in that direction so as to make us pursue these ideals even more. Because if you, on the contrary, promote the idea that actually you're kind of the way you're born, then nobody is going to try and change themselves. Um, and you were, you were emphasizing young people, which I think is really important because while clearly all groups are subjective to this, this discourse, some groups are more under pressure than others. And so young people tend to be more under pressure than others as well as people who are part of minority groups along a number of dimensions. Um, so gender, race, ethnicity, ability, sexual orientation, um, or other dimensions may, will make people more vulnerable to, to these pressures and these ideals. Totally. And I would love to be able to talk about each and every individual <laughs> in every group that, um, uh, you know, of marginalized people. Um, but for our purposes today, yeah, focusing on young people and more importantly, the parents of these young people, that's our target market. And thinking about their unique vulnerabilities and what's a parent's responsibility in terms of helping them along in their development with, you know, evolving senses of self and evolving body image and self-image, like what can a parent do given what youngsters are just inevitably bombarded with? So I think that there are a couple of ways that parents can act as that volume button, as, as we were saying, and, and turn it up or, or turn it down. And so if we think first about the way in which parents can um, unintentionally, most likely, but actually act as an amplifier for those ideals, Mm -hmm. I think there are, there are a couple of pieces that are important that involve both the way that parents interact with their children, but also the way that they talk about or they treat their own bodies. Mm -hmm. So regarding interactions with, with young people, we know that making comments about children's appearance, their weight, shape, or eating behaviors is generally not helpful. And in some cases, particularly when it involves teasing, it's been shown to increase the risk for eating disorder behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely um, something to be mindful of. And even comments that were designed to be positive can paradoxically perhaps be unhelpful because they continue to reinforce this idea that appearance and weight are very important. I think that's really important to point out because it's so intuitive to 
pr- want to offer praise to your child, regardless of what it is, if mm-hmm. it's something they do, it's almost like it's so well-meaning. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciated what you said, you know, right before you got started talking about how a lot of this is unintentional, um, yeah. that, you know, most parents, especially the parents listening to our podcast are not out there intentionally trying to amplify, um, mm-hmm. anything, any, any dangerous noise for their children. But this, this one in particular, giving positive feedback about appearance, praise, compliments, that it may very well be as risky as negative comments, if that, if I'm hearing you, I just think that's a really important one for people to take in. Yeah. And as you say, it can be counterintuitive. Parents also actually, though, play a role through the transmission of their own attitudes about weight and shape and their own eating behaviors. And children will learn from watching their parents talk about their own bodies in positive or negative ways Mm -hmm. and from the way that they perhaps talk about their bodies from an outside and disembodied perspective versus a more embodied process-focused perspective. Mm -hmm. And then this will shape the way that children can think or inhabit their own bodies. Can you say a little bit, because these words disembodied and embodied, I think as, as clinicians, we hear that and we, we know what you mean, but would you mind just taking a minute to just share a little bit to our listeners, like about what, what that means? What is a disembodied relationship with the body versus an embodied relationship with the body? Sure. Um, the way, the way that I think about it is that uh, a disembodied perspective is one, for example, where you move through the world thinking about how your body is appearing to other people. So you're sort of situating yourself outside of the body and looking at it more as an object and in terms of how it's looking and how, how other people are perceiving you. And in contrast, an embodied perspective is one where you are situating yourself inside your body and you're more attuned to the way that it feels as you move around the world and your internal cues. Are you, are you hungry? Are you tired? How, how are you feeling in your body at the minute? So if a parent wants to model an embodied relationship to their own body for their child, mm. like what does that, what does that look like? It involves the way you talk about your body, as, as I was saying. So if you're making comments about the way you look in your clothes or things like that, about the people's appearance, your own appearance, that would illustrate more of a disembodied perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you are um, commenting on your, your attunement to your own physical processes and um, kind of asking children questions about their body through that lens, how do you feel right now? Um, then that will tend to model more of this embodied perspective. Mm-hmm. Getting curious about your child's internal world. Yes, um, and, and inviting them to be curious about their own. Yeah, yeah. So the, disem- the modeling the disembodied relationship is for sure turning up the volume on this uh, appearance yeah. ideals, yeah. problematic appearance ideals that then could get dangerously internalized. Absolutely. Anything else? Um, Yeah. So parents also play an important role in shaping eating behaviors themselves. Mm. Um, So obviously when children are younger, this is done more directly practices, um, but also later on through what foods are available around the house or how meals are organized and prepared and how parents relate to food. So an example there might be the difference between a parent who might accept dessert saying, oh, I really shouldn't eat this, which 
could give the idea that somehow it's it's shameful or not a good thing to be eating dessert or giving in to the impulse of eating the dessert versus someone who enjoys it in moderation and models listening and ex- and responding to internal hunger cues as they're as they're enjoying the dessert. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that in practice, certainly if you can model for your child that you that you can eat dessert, that dessert's not a bad thing, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that that sounds positive. But are there ways to model be, like being attuned to your body in an you know in an embodied way, even <laughs> when you don't when you don't choose dessert, right? Because like mm-hmm. sometimes a parent might not want dessert, but ha- you know it's kind of a nuanced question. But I'm just sitting here wondering, like, well, what if I want to model embodiment and you know healthy, positive relationship to food and not going into good and bad food choices? But I don't want dessert. Can I still do this? Can I still can I still avoid amplifying? <laughs> I think it's much more about the process than the actual outcome. It's it's not so much about whether you eat the dessert or you don't. Yeah. It's much more about the way that you are framing that choice. Mm-hmm. So if it appears that the choice is being motivated by a desire to control weight and shape and the idea that food choices are part of that process, then you're leaning more towards the turning the volume up. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the choice is framed as being guided by other more embodied processes, um, then you're you're moving more towards turning the volume down. Yeah, it's an important distinction because it's it it doesn't mean you have to have dessert all the time, nor does it mean you should you know if you if you never have dessert, this is a problem. But the way you, exactly. the way you relate to dessert as a parent, it's sending a message, and whether you know it or not, you are either amplifying something very problematic or or buffering it, which we'll get to, I guess, next. (laughs) Yeah. At the same time, I think it's also important to think about this in terms that it's not any single choice that's going to, of course, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) tip the balance. This is, this is an overall environment that we're creating. We we don't want anybody to be too anxious about. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Today is the day. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No, thank you. I think our listeners will appreciate hearing that, um, (laughs) that there's, there's a fluidity here. Um, before we move on to buffering, there's just that I wanted to bring up, which is regarding media use in particular. Yes. Um, so there are there are a couple of things about media use that might overall be less helpful. The first is exposing children to content that conveys strong messages about a parent's ideals. So more children are exposed to this type of content generally, the more likely they are to endorse and internalize the thin ideal, as you were saying earlier. And furthermore, consuming this type of media with children might give them the idea that you're implicitly endorsing this type of messaging, even if you're not saying so. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is making appearance, weight and shape comments about the media content. So even if the media itself is not appearance focused, if, if the parents are commenting on the weight and shape or the appearance of people in the media. So, for example, you might be watching something that's more about the news or or current affairs. And if you're commenting on the appearance of a public figure, this continues to reinforce the idea that this is a salient and important aspect about that person. Mm -hmm. So, like, you could be really actively trying to avoid, uh, you know, the Kardashians and you could have the nightly news (laughs) hour on. But if you comment on the sort of superficial qualities of the anchor, let's say, 
yeah, the, yeah. the shape, the, the appearance that even though here you are like protecting your kid from a certain type of television, exposing them to something maybe a little bit more quote nourishing or stimulating that if you start commenting on the appearance of the people on that show, it's sort of no different. It's like you're, you're drawing attention to the wrong thing. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 That is hard to do, <laughs> to just in terms of uh, managing media use. I know that my kids are a little bit young for that, but it's a, it's a, a big concern among parents mm. of slightly older children. Um, how do you tackle that one? Because it's so abundant. Yeah, yes. Well, so as we think about how you do do that regarding media specifically, I think there are a couple of strategies that can be useful for parents to consider. The first is obviously really trying to actively moderate children's exposure to appearance-focused content. So you might choose to not watch certain TV programs or have beauty and fitness magazines at home or thinking about the type of social media that that the family consumes. Mm -hmm. But also thinking about the the way that you're relating to media exactly in the way that you're describing and also in providing media literacy. So, for example, by explaining that most images in the media, including social media, are unrealistic and unrepresentative, encouraging young people to think critically about what's being said also implicitly through the way the images are created and portrayed, thinking about who who is creating the media, what they're trying to get you to buy into in terms of ideas or literally purchase. And so really encouraging that, that critical lens mm-hmm. around media consumption. I mean, that's so important. And it's, it, I could see that being very empowering, like helping your child develop a way of looking at the world on their own terms and looking, looking, thinking critically, looking critically and not taking it as gospel, like just because that's what's on social media or that's what teenage girls look like in magazines, but actually Mm -hmm. being, I'm hearing you say that you can actually have a hand in training your child to approach all that with a critical lens so that they can evaluate whether or not they want to buy into that. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then as we think about other helpful buffering strategies, so going back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of modeling positive attitudes or healthy behaviors, So parents can definitely be good role models by speaking about their own bodies in a positive way. So not focusing only on its appearance, but its capacity to to do things, um, to support their their goals, their activities, their passions, and being in tune with inner sensations. They can also model healthy behaviors like eating breakfast and serving nutritious meals, preparing them with their children, making them a part of that, and making family meals an enjoyable moment. So there's, there's converging evidence that family meals are a really important part of building positive body image and eating behaviors in children and adolescents. And so making time for those family meals during the week when everybody's schedules get so busy can be really important. And parents can also model acceptance of bodies of all shape and size and encourage their children to do the same thing. That seems so critical, especially in the you know, society we live in, like we're talking about this thin ideal that's sort of everyone's chasing after and yet it's like it's not even a realistic thing to chase for most people and so this idea that it's like essential and okay to accept not just your body but all bodies I mean what does that 
look like? What what can a parent do to really model that and really get that that conversation going with their children from a young age? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it includes again not commenting so much on on your own appearance, not commenting on your children's shape, weight, or food choices. Definitely not teasing. Um, it also includes placing a focus on other things. So mm-hmm. praising your children for their internal qualities, for their accomplishments, for other characteristics, or or things that um, you and your child overhear being said by other people or, or in the media and having a conversation about, um, you know, what, what, what do we think about that comment? Is, is that something that we, we think is the, the best way of, of viewing the world? Mm-hmm. It really, that's a very respectful way to engage a young person too, to really ask them, like, well, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, it, I feel very hopeful. I feel like a lot of what you're uh, telling people to do is just less. <laughs> like, you know, like kind of comment less and, and, and draw less attention to, you know, shape and size. And actually you're doing a lot. It's a very powerful tool to offer your child to really, it's like, it's a lot of doing less, doing not, yeah. right? <laughs> well, before my million dollar question that we always ask, <laughs> um, is there anything that, you know, that falls into the category of that volume switch, like amplifying, buffering that you feel is important to note? Uh, I think we've, we've covered a lot. Um, the, the only thing I would emphasize again is that most parents are well-meaning and they, they really do want their children to be healthy and happy. And this can be very difficult to do. And it can be quite a challenge. I think being a parent of a, of a young person in today's society that is so appearance focused and so just acknowledging that yeah. um, and also saying that for people who, who are finding this particularly challenging, um, there are programs and resources that have been shown to be helpful for, for adolescents and for parents. So there, there are definitely also some kind of more structured things out there. So, Rachel, our million-dollar question, given all that you know um, – and you know so much, and I appreciate that compassion that you're offering to parents in what you're saying, that this is hard. This is so hard to do, especially in the day and age we live in. So if, based on everything you know, someone listening to this episode can really only do one thing and can do it with regularity, but can really just do one thing, what is the most potent thing they can do to protect their child? I think um, that it's a, it's a two-part response. That's I appreciate okay. the focus on any one thing. <laughs> it's okay. It's a really hard question. <laughs> it is a very hard question. Um, I think it involves creating a home environment that downplays the importance of appearance, which is what you're saying about the doing less mm-hmm. and is, is neutral with respect to weight and really focuses on other aspects of, of people as persons. And then critically, never, never encouraging children to diet or change the way that they eat with the goal of losing weight because because that is really a, a well-documented risk factor for, for disordered eating behaviors and, and should really be avoided. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure I'm hearing because they're very good. They're both so good. We could have episodes on each of these. <laughs> <laughs> but one, I hear you saying really striving each and every day to create an environment for your kids that's really, would you say, body neutral? Yes. So minimum emphasis on even positive body comments 
and certainly no negative body comments and yeah. just really increasing the uh, space and the environment of home to be a place where you as a parent are interested in other things that pertain to your children other than the way they look and also others. That's exactly it, yeah. And then I'm glad you gave us a twofer because we're both here so passionate about that really actively discouraging dieting because that is just such a risk factor in and of itself for so many problematic things. Absolutely, yes. So helpful. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and our listeners are so lucky to have the benefit of all that you've researched and your commitment to the field of eating disorder prevention research. So I'm just, I'm very delighted. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. So that's our show. If you haven't already, we strongly encourage you to grab the virtual guide to this episode by subscribing to our mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. We've curated some amazing resources to ensure that all body positive parents are thoroughly informed about diet culture and better armed to help their kids fully bloom, despite the many obstacles it throws our way. Dr. Rogers' research challenges us to think critically about what we've been doing with that powerful volume button we hold for our children. Are there times we've unintentionally amplified the noise? Absolutely. How about times we've intuitively served as buffers? Without question. Personally, we are excited to practice being more intentional with ours and can't wait to hear from those of you who are inspired to try out Dr. Rogers' research-based strategies. As always, we invite you to follow us on Instagram this week for more content dedicated to this very topic. And tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom.